Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. This is the word of God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning and the way that you orchestrate all things. I pray that we would see in this message this morning your glory and the beauty of your plan, Father, to draw us near to you through the birth of your son, Jesus. We ask that you would give us clarity as we look now at your word. And I pray also, Father, that you would give me the words to say, that they would be clear and in accordance with your scriptures. Father, we thank you for this wonderful time now this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in the world among us right now, it's said that there's about 17,400 different people groups, and the characteristics that make up a people group are often varied. Uh, but these characteristics often involve common things like race, religion, ethnicity, uh, language, oftentimes a common situation, and so on. And according to the Joshua Project, Right now in the world around us, 7,400 people groups are considered unreached. If you don't know what that means, unreached just simply means that a people group doesn't have enough Bible-believing Christians living among them with adequate numbers and resources to be able to reach their people with the gospel without outside assistance. So nearly half the world's population, that's 43%. Or 3.32 billion people have never even heard the name of Jesus. And the likelihood that they'll ever come across anyone who would tell them about Jesus is almost nil. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, I started to dig into historical population statistics. Interestingly, uh, you may not know this, but it wasn't until about the 1800s that the world's population amassed the first 1 billion people. <laughs> But then in the 20th century alone, we went from 1.6 billion to 6 billion people. And today it's estimated there's about 7.8 million people living in the world. That's amazing. In 2020 alone, this year, there's been about 60 million deaths due to all causes. Contrast that with 140 million live births. In other words, the world's population is growing at a startling rate. And the number of people living in utter darkness continues to grow at a rampant rate as well. The Sheikh of Bangladesh with 135 million people, the Brahmin of India with nearly 59 million people, the Hausa of Nigeria with 35 million people, the Bamar of Myanmar 
31 million people. The Morarabai of Brazil, a tribe estimated to be about 100 people. <laughs> and the list goes on. And it's really hard for us to imagine this, right? Because we live in a world full of all kinds of things that we have access to. Imagine, if you will, remember when you drove here this morning, you probably drove uh, on a 15-minute drive by three to five or even more churches. These people have no church buildings. They have no Bibles. They have no gospel. They have no light. They are a people living in utter darkness. There has been no dawn in their darkness. Not yet anyway. (laughs) The darkness in these unreached people groups is profound, and that leads us to our passage this morning. Turn with me now as we'll spend the majority of our time in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And as you're turning to Isaiah, uh, if you've never studied the book before, I want to provide a bit of context and background for you as we lead up to our passage. And I think Chuck Swindoll's summary of Isaiah is right on point. He says this, the book of Isaiah provides us with the most comprehensive prophetic picture of Jesus Christ in the entire Old Testament. It includes the full scope of his return to claim, sorry, the full scope of, sorry, (laughs) uh, the full scope of his life, the announcement of his coming, his virgin birth, his proclamation of the good news, his sacrificial death, and his return to claim his own. And because of these and numerous other texts in Isaiah, The book stands as a testament of hope in the Lord, the one who saves his people from themselves. In chapters 7 and 8 of Isaiah, we find a people living in great spiritual darkness. At the time of these chapters, as Lars mentioned, around 732 to 734 BC, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant in which his descendants would be blessed, and the Davidic promise that a Savior would come from his line were replaced by the people with all the false promises, fears, doubts, and judgments of this world. A Syrian invasion brought with it death, deportation, devastation, and darkness. And the question for the people of Judah was one of trust. In other words, would they trust in the human strategies of the failing king, that is, King Ahaz, or in the promise, promises that come from the king of all, that is God. And Isaiah assures King Ahaz that he can trust in the promises of God. But as we see in Isaiah 7 and 8, King Ahaz decides to place his trust in the promises of the world, thus resulting in God's holy judgment of the people of this time. I want to read from chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, just a little bit here so you get a sense of the true darkness that they're in. If they will not speak according to this word, beginning in verse 20, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. Now listen to this in verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Unfortunately, God has a plan for them. Despite the evil of this world, there were still a few people, a remnant, as it were, of his followers. And Isaiah is speaking to them with words of hope, endurance, and patient trust in the promises of of God that indeed his, 
that God will honor his promises. And this brings us to our primary passage this morning in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Look at these verses. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So coming out of the darkness and gloom and despair of the end of chapter 8, Isaiah makes a transition here to the light of the world and the hope for the new era that we'll see in verses 2 through 7. Now, I want to make a couple quick observations related to these two verses because the nuances here are really beautiful. First of all, I want you to notice the language Isaiah uses. He's referring to events in the past tense in both verses 1 and 2 as it relates to both the former and latter times. And honestly, this can get a little bit confusing, so stay with me here for just a second. Isaiah's vision from the current and present darkness of the time is referred to here in verse 1 as the former time. He speaks of the present as if it is already in the past, okay? And then the latter time, he refers to the things of the future. And once again, we see him use verbs like has made glorious, again, demonstrating something as if it is in the past, even though, in this case, it is referring to events in the future. (laughs) This is what Bible scholars refer to as the prophetic perfect, And again, this can be a little bit difficult to understand, but one commentator states it this way. The past tense is used instead of the future tense when the speaker views the action as being as good as done. This is very common in the divine prophetic utterances where though the sense is literally future, it is regarded and spoken of as though it were already accomplished in the divine purpose and determination. I love this. The figure is to show the absolute certainty of the things spoken of. So Isaiah's words here then are a prophecy of the coming Messiah who will bring with him the dawn in the darkness. And for a people who have lived in great darkness, this assurance that these prophetic words would come to pass must have been truly remarkable. (laughs) Now making the next observation, let's switch from a little bit of grammar to a little bit of geography. And I don't want to go too far in the weeds here, but I think this is really amazing as you look at this. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali are two tribes whose lands are are located just north of the Sea of Galilee. And their location in the north, unfortunately, makes them the subject of of frequent conquests and invasions from foreign militaries, namely Assyria. And over and over again, these regions are conquered, leaving them... uh, them Uh, frequently influenced by other religions and cultures. And by all accounts, this region in the north was lost and hopeless. They were gone, (laughs) depraved, living in darkness, destitute, great distress. We just read about this in Isaiah chapter 8, right? So let's pause here for a second. I want you to imagine your Isaiah at this time. You're living at one of the most hopeless times in history in one of the most hopeless regions in history. And these words, which we know from 2 Timothy 3.16, are literally breathed out by God. These are the things that you're now writing down. Amazing. 
We know Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that the prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. So imagine what these words must have meant to them. Out of this desolate darkness, there's a hope that dawns. Now the New Testament gives us the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which really helps us understand why this geography is so fascinating. Look with me now uh, as we turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 17. Now when he heard the, the he here referring to Jesus, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Now listen to this. <laughs> in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now these areas, the lands of Zebulun and the lands of Naphtali, are a perpetual melting pot of Jews and Gentiles. It's literally one of the darkest places spiritually. And this is where Jesus begins his ministry. <laughs> Out of the darkness, the dawn breaks. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So a couple quick points of application here. First, I want you to know that if you're walking in darkness this morning, this message is for you. The message of the hope of Jesus has always been to save the sinner from their darkness. Satan's purpose is to lure you away to the things of this world, which I can assure you leads only to a state of deeper darkness. Look at the words of Jesus in John 8, 12. He says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So please, don't reject the light this morning. Don't reject Jesus as so many have in the past. And second, brother and sister, if your light seems dim this morning, listen to this spoiler alert. Jesus defeats the darkness. Amen? You know that old king, uh, kid song, This Little Light of Mine? Well, there's that line in there. Don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. You know, I've given it some thought. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever realized this before, but Satan cannot blow out your light. Look, believer, no matter how dim your light might get, there's nothing that can blow it out. Did you ever see what happens when you take a, a candle or a, a match and you hold it over a, another flame? What happens to it? It grows bigger and brighter and more beautiful. And that is the reason that staying in the word is so important. That is the reason that remaining in fellowship is so important. Remain in worship, abide in prayer, memorize the scriptures. These things will help your flame grow brighter 
They are fuel for the fire. I love what John Piper says, referring to the contrast here between darkness and light and gloom and glory. He says, the dark things of the Bible are spoken of for the sake of the light. The ugly things are spoken for the sake of beauty. The painful things are spoken for the sake of comfort. The sorrowful things are spoken for the sake of joy. And conflict is pictured for the sake of peace. So lean into the light of the world. There is great hope there. Let's look now at how this great hope leads to great triumph and joy. Beginning in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So Isaiah is going to highlight, at least in, in, as I see it, two triumphs or victories uh, that come from Jesus. So looking again at verse 3, we'll see the first triumph. You have multiplied the nation. Now, it would be easy to look at this and say that this is referring to the nation of Israel, since nation is in the singular form here. And I'm going to move a little bit quick here, so just stay with me. But in Genesis chapter 12 and 17, we see God's promise to Abraham that he will be the father of many nations, and that in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. As one commentator states it, to be in some person, as it says in Genesis 12, 3, is to be a member of that people for whom that person is the representative. Now, the beauty of our time is that we have both the Old Testament and the New Testament to understand these things. So let's look at Galatians 3, 8, and 9. It says this, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Going to keep building on this then. Look at the words of Jesus on Je- in, uh, sorry, in John 10, 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be, and, and pay attention to this, one flock, one shepherd, one nation. <laughs> Let me remind you, this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Isaiah's getting a glimpse of this, but without all the information that we have today, right? So look, Jesus's life makes it possible that we are included in the multiplied nation. This is nothing short of a marvelous triumph, amen? Let's look at the second triumph, which involves the rest of this section. Now, Isaiah's gonna tell us about two joys. The joy of the harvest and the joy of dividing the spoils. And I'll come back to these joys in just a second. Isaiah gives us the grounds for their joy, our joy, in verses 4 and 5. And that is that Jesus breaks the yoke. Jesus breaks the staff. Jesus breaks the rod. Jesus has done this. And it says broken as on the day of Midian. Now, If you need a history lesson here again, we'll go back to Judges chapter 7. The day of Midian is referring to Gideon's victory over the Midianites. 
The Midianites are said to be like locusts in abundance. Their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Now, you might recall uh, God whittles Gideon's army down from 22,000 to a measly 300 people. <laughs> and reading from Judges chapter 7, verses tw- verse 22, And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. Now, this is an absolutely stunning victory over the Midianites. The only way that this happens is that God accomplishes it. So looking back at Isaiah chapter 9, the reason for the increase in joy is because of the defeat of the enemy, Satan. The yoke, the staff, the rod, these things are terribly oppressive and abusive. And what Isaiah is saying here, though, is that these things will know the same God-sized defeat in only a way that God can do. As on the day of Midian. Wow. No wonder they're rejoicing. And I love this quote by Dale Ralph Davis as it relates to verses 3 through 5. He says this, The joy of verse 3 and freedom of verse 5 are possible because of a divine arms embargo seen in verse 5. Yahweh doesn't merely eliminate bows and spears and tanks and bombers, but even sends up in smoke the footwear and blood-soaked clothes of individual troops. (laughs) Even combat boots and ammunition vests will be toast. Celebration, liberation, pacification, these are the prevailing conditions that the Messianic king will bring about. Look at Psalm 46.9. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And listen to this in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Another word for exaltation is joy, is worship. So the take-home point for these verses is worship God. These three verses serve as fodder for our praise. He alone is responsible for our joy. He alone is responsible for our triumph. And this is what motivates us then to tell the nations about Jesus. Let's keep going. I want you to imagine that you're living at the time of Isaiah. And you've just been told of the dawn and the darkness and the joy and triumph of this coming Messiah. So I'm certain the thoughts up to this point are of a mighty warrior on a valiant steed with sword and javelin like you've never seen before, right? That that would be what I would be thinking if I were them. (laughs) But watch how Isaiah presents the coming king. Reading in verse 6. For to us a child is born. (laughs) To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now let's stop there for a second. Pay attention again to the nuance of Isaiah's language. Maybe you've never noticed this before either, but we're going to see two amazing things here. First, to us a child is born indicates his humanity. He is the son of man. He put on flesh. He actually lived as a baby. He required his mother's help just like you and I did. 
He had to learn to crawl and then to walk. He had to eat and drink. He endured temptation just like we did. He wept. He bled. He suffered. He died. And then secondly, he came as a son. This isn't referring to him being the son of Mary, but rather him being the son of God. (laughs) Therefore, he is fully God. He turned water into wine. He healed the sick and lame. He walked on water. He calmed the sea. He knew the thoughts of the people. He claimed the authority of heaven and earth. He rose from the grave. This identifies his deity. Now, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago during a transition, but I think that old Christmas hymn says it so well. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. One commentator says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at how Isaiah describes the names of Jesus. And, he's, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Listen to these words of Charles Spurgeon regarding the names of Jesus in verse 6. I love this. (laughs) How complex is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? Almost in the same breath, the prophet calls him a child and a counselor, a son and the everlasting father. This is no contradiction and to us scarcely a paradox, but it is a mighty marvel that he who was an infant should also at the same time, be infinite. He who was the man of sorrows should also be God over all, blessed forever. And that he who is the divine trinity, always called the Son, should nevertheless be correctly called the everlasting Father. How forcibly this should remind us of the necessity of carefully studying and rightly understanding the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at each of these names individually, beginning with Wonderful Counselor. Literally translated means Wonder Counselor. Now, we all know what a counselor is, someone who gives wise advice regarding a matter, but why use this word wonder? Wonder in this case is meant something like supernatural. It's, It's meant to cause us to think back over the wonder of a God who could create the universe out of nothing. It's meant to cause us to think in wonderment over a God who could take a 90-year-old woman and make her able to have a baby. (laughs) It's meant to to cause us to think over the wonder of a God who could put three men standing in the center of a fiery furnace and leave them completely unsinged. This fact gives greater weight to the status of his counsel because it comes with a supernatural sort of counsel that is tried and true and can be trusted. Now, many of you have been to a counselor before, and this can be a very good decision. So please know that I'm not trying to diminish the the work of counselors in our world right now. This is important. But let's look at the definitive truth of the following statements from one preacher as it relates to this wonderful counselor. I love these. 
The earthly counselor must ask to know your need. The wonderful counselor knows your need before you ask. The earthly counselor helps, uh, sorry, the earthly counselor hopes he can help you. The wonderful counselor knows he can help you. The earthly counselor tries to give you an appointment, and the wonderful counselor is always available. <laughs> the earthly counselor charges a fee. This one's my favorite. The wonderful counselor paid the price with his blood. In other words, an earthly counselor has the potential to be right or wrong in their counsel, but the Son of God, as he is described here, is perfect in counsel. And again, please don't misunderstand me here. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't seek professional counseling. If, if that's what is needed, this can be right and good and helpful. But, but as it relates to our text this morning, the most true, most righteous, most holy counsel comes from Jesus Christ, our wonderful counselor. Looking now at mighty God, if there was any question of the divinity of this child in any of the prior statements to this point, you need not doubt it any longer. <laughs> the term God or Yahweh or Lord is a direct and definitive title given to the one who is most certainly divine. And in this case, divine meaning omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. Calvin puts it well. He is therefore called the mighty God, for the same reason that he was formerly called Emmanuel, as we see in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. For if we find in Christ nothing but the flesh and nature of man, our glory will be foolish and vain, and our hope will rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation. <laughs> but if he shows himself to be to us God and the mighty God, we may now rely on him with safety. If we are to rest secure in anything, overcoming the evil of this world, it must be divine and it must be powerful. And rest assured, our mighty God is capable of defending and overcoming. And the Bible is full of evidence of this. So if mighty God is descriptive of the brilliance and power of the one willing to fight and defend us, everlasting Father demonstrates equally the tent the tremendous care and love of a king, of a father, toward his people. Now, I want to caution you here. It might be easy uh, to, to assume the meaning here to be the father, as in the triune God the Father. But rather, what we are seeing here is something so much different, something so beautiful, and if I may, so intimate. Everlasting father can be better translated as father of eternity, and I think it interesting that the word father can stir up some mixed emotions. In fact, if I were to ask everyone sitting in this room today, how would you describe your father? We would have varying degrees of, of answers. For some, loving, gentle, kind, caring, playful, warm, comforting. Yet for others, disconnected, distant, abusive, hateful, destructive, cold, calloused absent. No matter what sense of the earthly father figure you have as you've come to know, understand that what Isaiah is referring here in, a, in this passage is something we have never fully understood in our earthly father. 
The love of a good earthly father is one thing, but to know the compassion, the tender, loving, wise, faithful compassion of a father who would die for you, who did die for you, is an entirely different story. And this goes further than just the sense of a father figure, though. As I mentioned, this everlasting father can be translated father of eternity. Again, going even a step farther into that, father can be translated originator. In other words, he is the originator of all things eternal, which comes as a result of his victory over death. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. (laughs) I love this. Look at this. Remember what I said a moment ago? Let me state it again. To be in some person is to be a member of that people for whom that person is the representative. Do you remember me saying that? This means that you, follower of Christ, of the everlasting father, the father of eternity, the originator of all things eternal, if you are in him, you have the assurance of your salvation. This is awesome. (laughs) Think of what this means for you who follow Christ, all of you who follow Christ in this room today. I think Paul drives this point home in Romans 8, 38 and 39. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the father of eternity, he gave his life for you, and he knows you intimately. He knows you by name, and he knows the number of hairs on your head. He loves you and will forevermore. He is unchanging. He knows no end. And that is a father figure you can rely upon. And finally, Prince of Peace. (laughs) It sounds nice, doesn't it? I think I could be wrong, but I think at the end of the year 2020, a Prince of Peace to follow sounds amazing. The New York Post published an article back in November titled, 2020 Events So Far. Yep, these major world events all happened this year. (laughs) Let me list some of those events. Australian bushfires. American fire sweeps across the West. Prince Harry quits the royal line. (laughs) COVID-19 pandemic. Kobe Bryant's death. Potential impeachment of the president. Stock market crashes, civil unrest related to racial discrimination, police brutality in the suite to defund them, murder hornets, Beirut explosion, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, 2020 presidential election, Joe Biden becomes president-elect. Honestly, that list could keep going, right? We all know this. Those are just the world events. It doesn't even cover the personal experiences that we've all had this year, right? The struggle of this year has hit everyone, believer, non-believer, adult, child, sick, healthy, rich, poor. It doesn't matter. Everyone's been impacted by this. One report indicates that in June of this year, 40% of U.S. adults were struggling with mental health or substance abuse as a result of the pandemic and social distancing. And what's going to happen in our world? What's going to happen in our country? 
So it almost goes without saying that the title of the king to come, this prince of peace, is a welcome thing to behold. But again, it will be unlike any peace we've ever known. This is not just about inward peace. For the follower of Christ, prince of peace defends both the internal and the external peace, right? Shalom, as it is, will last forever. Listen to these words from Revelation 21.4. As we get a sense of what this peace will look like. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And we'll see in a moment the full breadth of what this Prince of Peace will bring. And as we close this section on the names, on these four names, I think Philippians 2, 9 through 11 adequately summarizes the reason for the dawn. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's look at our final verse from chapter 9 this morning, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, periodically in the scriptures, we come across statements like, like we just saw in verse 7 where, it, I don't know, maybe, maybe you can fathom this, but I can't fathom this kind of kingdom. I can't fathom this kind of peace. <laughs> Honestly, we've never seen anything quite like this before. So we're fortunate enough to have the holy scriptures, right? Look, looking a couple chapters over to the right in your, in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 11, I think gives us a really wonderful glimpse of what this looks like. I'm going to read you a portion of chapter 11 now. I might even encourage you to close your eyes and listen to these words. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This, of course, is speaking about Jesus. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be counsel and might. Sorry, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. Brothers and sisters, no wonder we are dissatisfied with the leaders of this land. This, this is the kind of king we long for. I'm going to keep reading. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. <laughs> and a little child shall lead them. 
The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the king we look forward to. This is the prince of peace. This description in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, we've just learned about this morning, is about the one who we celebrate for Christmas. And with good reason. Isaiah ends chapter 9, verse 7 with a seal. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The jealous God, the God who wants all the worship in the world will do this. In closing, Lottie Moon was a missionary that spent 39 years in China bringing the hope of Jesus to these unreached peoples in the the 1800s. Listen to what she says. Once more, I urge upon the consciences of my Christian brethren and sisters the claims of these people among whom I dwell. Here I am working alone in a city of many thousand inhabitants with numberless villages clustered around or stretching away in the illuminated distance. How many can I reach? It fills one with sorrow to see these people so earnest in their worship of false gods, seeking to work out their salvation by supposed works of merit. Listen to this. With no one to tell them of a better way. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this this morning. The greatest missionary story ever told is the story of Jesus who came to the earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the dawn in the darkness. Right now in our world, our world and abroad, There are billions of people without the knowledge of these things living without that dawn in the darkness. Now, there is great hope in the darkness as we saw early on in verses 1 and 2. And we celebrate the triumph and joy as we saw in verses 3 and 5. And the reason we do so is because the darkness cannot overcome the dawn. Jesus wins. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard of this good news, and I want you to look up here. Jesus is calling you to follow him. At the beginning of all time, we were in peace with God, shalom with God. But sin entered the world and devastated that shalom. Satan has been wreaking havoc on the world ever since that time, but God has been orchestrating a plan to redeem you. He came as, Jesus came as a baby. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross as the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And he paid the ultimate price with his life. But that's not the end of the story. Because I serve a God that's not dead. He rose from the grave three days later, proving victory over death. He offers himself as a free gift to all who would receive him. 
to all who would believe in his name. And this is the greatest Christmas gift that you could ever receive. Let me tell you about some more good news. Jesus is never going to fail you. If you place your trust in him, he'll never leave you. To the one questioning this decision this morning to follow Jesus, this morning, I implore you, don't reject him. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Would you receive him this morning as your savior? I'm going to close now with this beautiful song by Chris Tomlin and Lauren Daigle called Noel. Listen to these words. Love incarnate, love divine. Star and angels gave the sign. Bow to babe on bended knee, the savior of humanity. Unto us a child is born. He shall reign forevermore. Son of God and son of man, there before the world began, born to suffer, born to save, born to raise us from the grave. Christ the everlasting Lord, he shall reign forevermore. Noel, Noel, come and see what God has done. Noel, Noel, the story of amazing love, the light of the world given for us. Noel, would you please stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, the fact that we call you Father is an absolute miracle. We stand before you this morning in awe of who you are. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. Lord, you deserve all our worship. And Father, we ask that you would continue to make your name known among the nations. Lord, let the nations be glad, as your word says. No, Lord, we long to be with you, but help us to finish this race. We praise you and we give you all the glory this morning. It's in your precious name. Amen. You're dismissed.